Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School and I'm Professor of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And again, I'm on the road. I'm joining from Burnie in northwest Tasmania today and my audio is not what it could be and I don't have my normal big mic, so I'm hoping that the sound isn't too bad. And Anna Greta, I think you're on the road at the moment as well. Yes, I'm also on the road. I'm in northern Victoria at the moment uh, in the federal seat of Indi, one of my favourite places to be. It is wonderful to be out and about uh, looking at the state of the environment, particularly with the rain that's on. But you're you're in storm territory there in Tasmania, I think, at the moment, Sharon. So we're hoping that your hotel room stays in one piece over the recording. There is a lot of wind here at the moment. There is a big storm brewing, but um, I am in a particularly beautiful part of the world, so it is wonderful to be here. Of course, as our regular listeners know, Policy Forum Pod is based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. As we mentioned last week, we're hosting a series of online program information seminars from the 10th to the 13th of October, where you can chat to Crawford experts about degree programs and the short courses that we offer. There is a lot there that you can find out about, and we have some incredibly exciting programs. So do check that out. You can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study for more information, and we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Anna Greta, I am really looking forward to this conversation today. Um, would you like to introduce us to what it is we're going to be talking about? Well, this is the third in our bundle of, e- of episodes on education. In the first episode, we spoke to Professor Deborah Brennan and Leonora Rees about early childhood education and care and the undervaluing of that critically important service. Last week, Professor Kitty Tureel and Jennifer Scatterbole joined us to explore the ways in which the education system, from early childhood through to high school, supports and includes vulnerable children and their families. And in that conversation, we heard about some very serious gaps, despite the commitment and the best efforts of teachers. Through both episodes, we've also heard the remarkable opportunities for children and their communities when the challenge of educating our children is approached through an inclusive and caring lens. This week, we will discuss the challenge from the perspective of teachers. Over the recent months, there's been a great deal of discussion about the crisis within the teaching profession, very high workloads, relatively low salaries, and the undervaluing of teachers by society are all factors driving teachers from the profession. And all of this has been intensified by enormous pressures that teachers have faced during the COVID lockdowns and restrictions. So today, we are looking at the challenges facing the teaching profession and exploring the changes that are needed to produce better experiences of both teaching and learning. To do that, we are joined by two outstanding guests, Dr. Alice Garner and Professor Parsi Salberg. I would love to hear the two of you introduce yourselves. Alice, could we start with you? Sure. Um, look, I'll, I'll start with the reason why I think I'm here, and that's because I'm someone who a couple of years ago um, stopped teaching. Uh, I was a career change teacher um, 
And before that, I'd been uh, an academic historian, um, an actor and musician, and I continue to do those things now. Uh, But I I suppose my qualification for contributing to this conversation is really about my teaching experience and and why I stopped. I'm currently based at the University of Melbourne in the uh, Melbourne Graduate School of Education as a researcher. It's fantastic to have you with us, Alison. That's just the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the things that you've done. Pazi, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. Thanks, uh, first of all, for having me in this conversation. I think this is a really important topic. Uh, uh, yeah, my name is Pazi. I came from um, Helsinki, Finland to Australia about four years ago. Uh, and my background is uh, in teaching. So I was teaching uh, in, in Finland for a while and then training, preparing these great Finnish teachers there for a number of years. Um, and I spent a, a time around the world in the United States and Italy and and uh, elsewhere in Europe, and uh, I'm back now here to try to figure out how to fix this uh, teaching crisis that we have. But it's good good to be with you, and, and we, we need more of these conversations in this country. Well, we'll see how much of this we can cover in the next 45 minutes or so. Alice, I'd love to start by getting some on-the-ground perspectives. And as you mentioned in your introduction, you have been a teacher. You're not teaching at the moment, but you have great insight into what a typical day might look like for a high school teacher in Australia. Could you take us through that? Yeah, sure. Straight away, I think, you know, where do you begin? Because, of course, um, you know, you turn up to school preparing yourself for uh, the timetable of that particular day, but there's been a lot of work before that and that work has been um, preparing lessons collaborating with colleagues uh, on you know in many different areas but also the work that's involved in getting to know your students in contributing in other ways to to school um, culture whether it be through sort of leadership positions or Uh, extracurricular um, activities. So there's a whole kind of constellation of things that teachers are thinking about as they turn up to school. There's a combination of long-term planning and last-minute thoughts as you walk towards the classroom too. So sometimes you're making last-minute adjustments. You've just found out that half the the class is going to be at a sports carnival, so you have to drop the lesson that you'd planned because you don't want the students to miss out. Uh, who aren't going to be there. So then you quickly, you know, on the run, think up a, a different set of activities that might be good for the remaining group. You know, then you might kind of bump into someone in the hallway who says, oh, remember how we were talking about, you know, rewriting that curriculum? Can we talk, you know, so there's those sorts of um, things that are happening on the run all the time. And then you get into the classroom and, of course, the first thing you have to do is sort of establish uh, a an atmosphere that is going to enable kids to to do some some good work and and to learn something and that can look very different depending on the age the subject the time of day uh, and so on so you know there's there's I guess there are many more things I could say but even if you're not in the classroom you are either constantly sort of getting ready for that next moment or, or following up on the things that uh, arose, say, in yesterday's class, and it might be a quick bit of marking because you have to get something to a student by a certain time. And then at lunchtime, you might be meeting with students who are behind with their work or someone who's come to you to ask you for help on a project. Um, you know, it sort of goes on. It's like it, it's a rolling, it's unlike any other job, actually, that I've had. And, and I know that every job throws things at people throughout the day. But my feeling is that teaching requires a kind of constant energy output that is really um, unusual and perhaps an equivalent might be someone working in a hospital, I'm guessing, you know. But you get home absolutely (laughs) exhausted. I used to go and lie down in my room with the lights off for a while before I could kind of come back out and be with my family and be a sort of normal human being. So it's it's compelling because it's different every day um, and it requires you to work at many different levels, intellectual, emotional, you know, physical, everything's going on. So it's a wonderful job for those reasons as well, but it is deeply, um, it's extremely demanding and, you, you know, you need stamina. 
Alice, thank you so much for, for mapping that so so clearly. Um, I'm actually in northwest Tasmania at the moment and doing research with primary school age children and have just spent six hours with them today. And, you know, the amount of focus and energy that's required to, to keep the engagement going is phenomenal. So that exhaustion that you describe, I, I feel after a couple of days and I'm amazed and in awe of teachers who do that day in, day out and, and keep children so engaged. It's, it's an incredible achievement. But Patsy, I, I wanted to turn to you. On last week's episode of the pod, we talked about the, the issues that for some children um, and young people and family in terms of both access to and experience of education. And we discussed policy documents in Australia, such as the 2019 Alice Springs Declaration, which highlight equity and also excellence. Pasi, I'd love to hear from you, how is and how should equity in education be defined? Yeah, that's a great million-dollar question that I have been trying to uh, convince the, for example, the Productivity Commission that is working on on the next uh, national school reform agreements um, to kind of accept and understand that we need to have a clear definition for what equity means. Otherwise, it continues to be a, a kind of a phrase or fashionable word that we include in every sentence that we want to do. I, I think, you know, one, one way to see the equity in education, first of all, we, we should look at the outcomes, the equity of education outcomes, the, the equality of opportunities often when we talk about equity of of inputs, the access to good schools and good curriculum and good instruction and materials and those things. But, uh, you know, equity of out, equity of educational outcomes is when we look at how different children do in school, um, given their different, very different backgrounds. And they're, they're, they're basically two dimensions in, in my understanding of equity. One, one is what we call, sometimes call a, adequate education that every, every child should have a, reach a minimum threshold education, whether it's a length of education um, or qualification that they they um, uh, they complete or different levels of education that they uh, re- receive and achieve and attain throughout their schooling. So, for example, here in Australia, it's a common and within the OECD, the, the, much of the rest of the world, really, the uh, expectation is that uh, this adequate education uh, means t- uh, uh, 12 years of schooling, so completing some sort of uh, uh, senior upper secondary education. So that's one thing that every every child should should um, have adequate education that will allow and enable them to live happy and and good life uh, in their own own choosing, of course. But then the other one, this other dimension that is um, sometimes called a social equity, that means that the education outcomes uh, across different socioeconomic groups or equity groups, if you wish, should be similar. Um, in other words, that the the average performance uh, within these different equity groups should be should be similar and di- uh, distribution of the um, uh, the learning outcomes, however they are measured, should be uh, should be similar as well. Which is not the case right now. If we look at the the educational outcomes or performance of different uh, social or equity groups here in Australia, for example, we can see that there's a huge uh, uh, achievement gap between the our uh, Aboriginal and Sto- uh, Torres Strait Islander children compared to the rest uh, of the society. Or if we look at the, the socioeconomically disadvantaged students and their performance against the, the other kids, uh, let, let alone the affluent uh, children, that they, there's a huge um, performance difference. And, and the distribution actually is very similar across these different equity groups. The problem is that there is the, this achievement gap, which indicates that there, 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 is a, uh, there is an inequity in the society. So what equity means that we, we, should, we should work towards a, a situation where these average uh, performances in different equity groups should be similar or close to similar and the distribution of these outcomes within these different uh, social groups should be similar. Then we, then we will be closer to the overall equity of education outcomes. But, you know, as long as we uh, we remain um, 
not insisting that equity should be defined, for example, this way. It means that equity of education outcomes will continue to be very difficult to monitor and measure. And whenever something is difficult to monitor in the society or, or evaluate or measure, give a value to it, nobody will be held accountable. And this this will be the one of one of the um, one of the risks in the future that if we don't have a proper definition for equity, then nobody will will be held responsible for the uh, equity or lack of it in the future. Alice, at the beginning, you've mapped the typical day of a teacher quite beautifully to to open this conversation. It, it did remind me of the uh, maybe organised chaos of a hospital environment that I've spent quite a bit of time in. And you've also begun to touch on the challenge of distributing and uh, and providing teaching and educational experiences to students who are at all sorts of different stages. I wonder if you could tell us just how challenging it is for a classroom teacher to achieve equity in the classroom environment and what sort of factors might be contributing to greater equity. Yeah, that's a huge question because um, I think what happens is teachers go in with, you know, at the beginning of the year with a sort of, you know, you come out refreshed from a bit of a break, ready to sort of meet new students and you get a certain amount of information about the students who are coming into your class. So you can make some preparations for various things that might affect the way they learn. And it might, in some cases, it might be disabilities that have been, um, you know, kind of not only diagnosed but shared with the school because it's also important to note that in some cases there are students who might have learning disabilities or difficulties that haven't been flagged or that their parents have chosen not to for various reasons share with the school. So you go in with a certain amount of information but that's only useful up to a point because sometimes labels can be misleading and sometimes you might think that because someone has been identified as having a certain uh, perhaps whether it's a, a learning disability or it might be something in their kind of family situation that might impact on their um, school experience, you know, that isn't always an indicator of certain sets of behaviours or or levels of understanding or anything. So there's no kind of simple, you know, system or kind of um, uh, checklist that, you know, operates in a straightforward way. We're talking about people in all their complexity. And so you really do go in sort of starting at zero and trying to understand the students in your classroom. Now, you know, I was teaching in a, um, a state secondary school and most of my classes had on average about 26 students. And, you know, it's hard to get to know that many people quickly. You can't do it straight away. You can make those first steps. But so so I think what I guess what I'm trying to say here is that relationship building is absolutely essential to get to know the students and to find out what they need in order to thrive in the classroom. But there are a whole lot of things that slow that down and make it difficult. One of those is the number of students that you're trying to get to know and to set up, you know, learning activities for and monitor those learning activities and so on. But also sometimes there will be situations where students present with certain you know, behaviours or whatever it might be that you don't really understand and that often we haven't been trained to understand or to respond to. So often what teachers are doing is doing this quick, you know, behind the scenes sort of, oh, I need to know a bit more about that situation or that, you know, you're quickly doing some reading or finding colleagues that might know something. And so it's not as though you come into the classroom fully prepared with um, materials that will suit every kind of student. That it, it, It's almost impossible actually to do that because you can't predict. So I guess, you know, one of the things that would have been helpful, I think, was more support in, for teachers in not only identifying but understanding how best to respond to a specific set of, you know, uh, it's not always problems either. It can just be things about students that, that affect the way they learn. Um, it's it's this complex thing again that that is a constant learning process, um, and I feel that often we we don't 
have the time or the support to really get on top of those things. I know there's a lot more that could be said, but I guess, you know, uh, and more education support staff in the classroom would be brilliant because in my experience, you usually occasionally had an education support person if a particular student was funded and they would only be funded to come into certain classes. It might be English or maths. Rarely would they come into, say, French class or a humanities or history class. Um, so, you know, there's there's a bunch of things that make it hard for teachers to respond in the ideal way, you know, and to be as flexible as and knowledgeable as you would want. Alice, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the, the need for more teaching assistance. The, I mentioned that I'm doing research with, with primary school-aged children at the moment, and one of the things that we're hearing from children um, is that they think their school edu- uh, their, their experience of school would be better if there were more teaching assistance because what we're hearing from them is that they really want and need more one-on-one time. Um, so I think that's something that the children are feeling as well as teachers. But we're also facing some really serious challenges in terms of teacher retention in Australia. And despite popular myths, teachers work very long hours, they're not very well remunerated, and they're not very well valued for their work. Percy, I'd, I'd like to hear from you what, what we can do to start to turn this around, both in terms of immediate steps, but also longer-term reform or perhaps transformation of the system to retain teachers and to make education a really valued profession that it should be. Yeah, I, I think first of all, I, I think I have to comment some of the some of the things that Alice was uh, explaining. Uh, you know, first of all, I, I think that the the teachers should not be the first ones to ask what are you, you know, how, how they are going to are trying to make the, the education more equitable because we, what you know, what we know from the research uh, from the last half a century really is that the, the family background is far more for powerful uh, explainer of students' learning uh, or lack of it in the school than most people think. We, we also know that teachers, teachers account about 10% of the variability of, of the students' learning uh, or, or measured learning in the school and about 60% of this variability is outside of the school gate, which basically means that uh, really what, if we really want to improve the, the education outcomes here in Australia, we need to look at the system level uh, issues, which directly goes to the policy policy environment and, and what people people can do outside of the school. So I, I think that, you know, going back to your question now, I think that, you know, this, this is one of those conditions that we need to, we need to stop expecting that teachers can do miracles in the school when they obviously don't have resources and facilities to do that, we we heard about the you know the lack of teaching assistance. If you have a classroom of twenty five where you have ten kids with the special educational needs or or, or anything that they would would be um, uh, benefiting from uh, teaching assistance or more individualized approach or something like this, but you know if the schools can't do that, it's uh, you know it's not the it's not that the teachers can do those. That's what the system needs to provide uh, those things. And you know, more we more we kind of expect teachers to do miracles and work against the impossible, which is the inequalities in a in unequal society like Australia or many others. Uh, that's you know, that's just doing the uh, you know working against all these expectations and wishes that we have to have more young people going in, in, into teaching. So we need to be realistic in terms of what we can expect. And the teachers can do much more when it comes to making teaching and learning interesting in in the schools and classrooms, building these relationships with the young people uh, that Alice was talking about that are extremely important things. But the teachers can't and schools can't really, you know, do away the these barriers that often exist with many many young people when they come to school that are are linked to more the the community or or family where they happen to live in. And uh, and that, that's why this, you know, I understand this equity thing is such an important thing. It's also important for making sure that we we uh, we have a realistic expectations from what our teachers can do and what they can't. Can I just second that? <laughs> I think absolutely. We can look at the micro elements of the classroom, but in the end, a school is not yeah, a silo. It's it's so interconnected with every other aspect of our society and economy. And yeah, I think the big picture is so important. 
I think that's the perfect place for us to stop and go to a break. But listening, Alice and Passy, to the things that you're saying, it it strikes me just the importance of thinking about the way in which systems are not working. And one of the things I think that is so striking is that the way in which every social problem that we have often gets moved into schools to resolve. You know, and um, there are issues that no other part of society is able to solve. So to expect schools to do that with the resources they have is, is simply unrealistic at best, but an enormous burden on teachers um, as well. But let's pick some of that up after the break. Um, so please don't go away. We'll be back with Alice Garner and Percy Solberg in just a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Parsi Solberg and Alice Gardner talking about how we address the challenges that are facing the education system. And before the break, I was having flashbacks to the conversations that we've had over the course of this year when we've looked at complex problems like biodiversity, climate change and the health system and our temptation to look at the microcosm of those systems uh, that really fails to address the big picture, uh, teaching, of course, being a small part of the social uh, network of our lives. So I, I can't wait to hear what our two guests will continue our conversation with today and what sort of solutions they might offer us. But before we go there, Alice, I'd love to hear your reflections on, on your career through education. You, you mentioned at the beginning that you entered teaching as a career change teacher, someone who has an established career, who moves into teaching and brings a wealth of professional and life experience with her. Attracting more career change teachers is often identified as one means of attracting more people into teaching profession. Uh, but what was your experience as a career change teacher? And if you're comfortable, perhaps you could share with us some of the reasons why you decided to leave the profession. Yeah, sure. Um, look, I, the funny thing is that when I was young, it never would have dawned on me to become a teacher, even though I actually enjoyed school. I went through the um, government school system in Victoria, I went to a lot of different schools, about nine actually, so I, I got a good taste of <laughs> many different schools. Um, but, you know, as, as a, in my 20s and 30s, I, you know, it never occurred to me to go into teaching. But then I had children. I had three children and, um, you know, they went to school and uh when my daughter, my oldest child, was in grade six, or actually grade five, and, you know, that conversation started about what school are you sending your child to, and I, I just started getting really cross. It was like, well, she's going to go to the local high school. And what I realised was that this was not what you were supposed to say or do, you know. And without wanting to, to, to go too far into the whole, the big elephant in the room of the public-private problem, uh, I actually decided that I wanted to get involved in reconnecting our local community with our local high school. And so I got very involved in that in a voluntary capacity as a parent and community member. And that experience of uh, kind of connecting with the school and of helping to very slowly, but, you know, over a number of years, the enrolments grew and it became, it's become a much more sort of popular and, uh, um, you know, uh, the enrolment's gone right up. They've got a new building. Yeah, anyway, it's a lot, that's a whole other story. But essentially I got very interested in education and schools and how they work. 
and their connection with communities as well. And as a result, I thought, oh, I actually think I want to see what it's like in a classroom now. Maybe I'll go and do some teacher training and, you know, and I kind of felt almost shy or embarrassed to tell people about this for some reason, which I think we probably all know, which is, you know, the the way that teaching is talked about uh, in the media and so forth. But I actually did it and I went and got my teaching qualification, got a job as a French and humanities teacher in a secondary school in Melbourne and sort of threw myself in the deep end and discovered initially, you know, it's such an exciting job. It's, I don't think people who haven't taught may not realise how intellectually stimulating it is. And I have a PhD in history. I'd I'd had it for a number of years and I'd worked in academia. So, you know, it's not like I'd been bored before, but I, I was just really um, amazed at what it threw at me, the questions that came, the 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 work with the young people, but also the collaborations with my colleagues. And that was another element that was wonderful. Like the, the, the rapport and the work that teachers do together is, is quite extraordinary, I think. So I loved all of that. But I quickly also realised how demanding this job would be. And over the next few years, I guess I realised it was going to completely swallow up my life and I would never have time to do other things that I've always done, like play music, um, you know, all sorts of other things that I like to do. So it was this kind of double bind of what an extraordinary profession, but it's going to kill me. (laughs) And um, so, look, after five years, even though I loved it in many, many ways, I also thought if I keep going like this, I'm actually going to burn out just from exhaustion. From um, And so I stopped. And it was partly also because my daughter said, we never see you. You know, maybe you should think about another job. So I took leave. Um, and that's really why I left. But there are all sorts of other little reasons that, you know, play into that. But essentially, I guess what I want to say is, you know, I think there is a desire out there for people to become teachers. People are drawn to education, but they have a lot of questions and legitimate questions about, you know, can I survive in that profession? Because I hear that it just knocks people out. So that's in a nutshell my experience. I was the classic person who lasted five years and then had to go. I may go back, but not until things change. Alice, I think that's such a powerful summary of all of the challenges um, within Australia's education system and how that then impacts on teachers um, and what it means for, for not just their profession, but their lives. Pasi, you've worked within you've studied and you've written about the Finnish education system. And, of course, that's a system that's often held up as being a world-leading system. What can Australia learn from the Finnish approach to teaching and learning? And, and particularly, what can we learn in terms of reforming some of the systems that are failing us? Uh, good question. We, we need to be very careful not to, uh, not to pick wrong things that are very difficult to translate from another culture like Finland to Australia. But I, I think, you know, if we remain in this teacher and teaching theme, I think, you know, one, one of those things that is is keeping the situation in Finland very different when it comes to retaining teachers. You know, we have a system there where once you uh, get your te- teacher uh, qualifications uh, from the university and co-teaching, you normally never leave. Very few p- people actually leave the, the profession. And, and people often ask, that, why is that? And why, why the teacher education is so much so popular and, and common among young people to um, to seek for the lifelong career? It's, it's a, it's often comes down to seeing and, and developing teaching as a profession, which is not always the case in other countries that meaning that it it can really be compared to the other high professions like uh, what medical doctors do or lawyers or architects or designers or others that there's a there's a uh, certain amount of professional autonomy in finland we call it a collective autonomy which means that teachers are uh have autonomy from the bureaucracy 
and administration, but less autonomy from one another that is, is seen as a kind of a collective uh, collective profession. But probably one one thing that really um, stands uh, higher than anything else when it comes to that very professional space where teachers work is trust. That teachers are trusted uh, since they are professionals. Uh, they are trusted by parents, but they are particularly trusted by politicians. And you know some of those comments and things, uh, reactions I've seen here in Australia during my time by some of the politicians um, and political leaders. You could never ever hear uh, in, in Finland because of the that would be a violation of the the kind of a professional code. And that's you know the, when when the young people in Finland when they realize that teachers are professionals and they are respected and trusted uh, in their own judgments and you know including uh, uh, in, including evaluating uh, how how and what the students are learning like in this country here and many others we have these standardized external tests that will qualify and justify how well kids learn in Finland is is all about you know it's a teacher's responsibility and it has created a teaching the kind of kind of an ethos of teaching in in Finland that is a very attractive it's a creative job and it's a knowledge uh, you know it's a knowledge based uh, uh, profession and i would also say that when i look at the the, the most recent com- commentary by the some of the education system leaders here where they are insisting that teachers in australia has to rely everything they do in a classroom on evidence uh, that th- and the teachers have to uh, you know Look for evidence and then share it with others. It's just a um, just something that is very hard for me uh, as as a Finnish uh, born and Finnish raised teacher to to understand. Because in in Finland we we tend to think that teaching is as much a uh, performing art; it's an art form than it is a science, a kind of a scientific craft. And uh, for for some people, I know many many teachers in Finland who think um, that. Teaching is primarily kind of a performing art form, uh, informed by by science, and and that's you know if we see teaching as a creative, interesting, collective uh, profession where where people have much more time to work together and think about how to do how to do things better in a school, unlike uh, unlike here, it's no wonder that young people still continue to seek teaching as their dream. Uh, lifelong career in a countries like Finland, and there are some other countries as well. But it's a, it's a really it's almost like a day and night the difference between uh, how how people experience the teaching profession in some countries compared to what it is here. That's really quite powerful. The idea of teaching is using science and imagination. Alice, earlier we talked talked about time, time pressure on teachers, and and I think the story that you told about your your experience working as a teacher, the passion that you brought in, and then the reasons why you left uh, were quite profound. I'm wondering what changes are needed for teachers to be able to focus their energies on teaching and learning. I wonder if you have a list, perhaps, of the essential changes that some that might bring someone with your skills back into the classroom. Yeah, look, I I, I was um, delighted at what Parsi was just saying then about, uh, you know, in a sense, I think you felt like you often had to keep proving that you were doing what you were doing by drawing on evidence, whether it was survey data from students or, um, you know, you were supposed to crunch numbers for, you know, assessment results and so on. And it felt like there was this constant requirement to kind of justify your existence and that's I personally I felt that every moment in the classroom was professional development for me and I would happily have gone and just sat and talked about what I was learning and the things that I knew that I needed to improve on and you know then go and seek out my colleagues who would know more about that for advice and to do that in a much more um, I suppose um, instinctive and spontaneous way rather than it all being recorded in spreadsheets, you know, in ways that might satisfy the department or whatever. So I'd have to say that that the, the kind of administration and record keeping that, that comes along with that, I guess, what you might call accountability requirements is very frustrating for teachers. Um, we, I think we all know what our strengths and weaknesses are and most teachers are trying to do something about that in the ways 
uh, that they collaborate with their colleagues. So that's one thing. The other thing is I think, you know, uh, Parsi mentioned the possibility of greater autonomy from administration of other kinds as well. So to give an example, um, I used to organise occasionally a year-level French excursion, say, to the cinema. And the paperwork that was involved in that took weeks and weeks, and I'm talking about risk assessments, I'm talking about writing consent forms, collecting consent forms, uh, getting first aid kits together, contacting the venue, booking the tickets, paying for the tickets, pulling up purchase orders. I mean, I had to do all that stuff, and that seems to me completely insane. (laughs) You know, I think my time would have been so much better spent on preparing a great set of lessons about the film that we were going to see um, and activities to do with that. Instead, you know, it was pushing, it was just paperwork. And they're, they're the kinds of things that drive teachers away, I think. Um, that makes no sense. It's not even efficient from a sort of management perspective. So, and yet, Teachers spend a lot of their days doing that kind of work. So if we're talking about just sort of day-to-day things, they're, they're some of the things that I, I think need to change. We've heard from both of you very powerfully um, about the things that make it very difficult for teachers to actually do the job that we would want them to do, which is teaching and engaging with children. Most of, of the research that, that I do is with children and young people who are facing very tough times, from poverty to hunger to concerns about safety and social marginalisation. And many of them find school a really difficult experience. Percy, I'd love to hear from you about how we transform schools from being places that add to the challenges of some children and young people to making them sites not just of positive learning and sharing, but to making them a joyous experience that excites the imagination of children. Um, and perhaps also teachers. Yeah, I, I think we simply we need more play uh, and more time to play in, in our schools uh, and all the schools, not just the primary or, or, or preschools, but all the schools need to be much more playful. And and you know this this is what we teach our children here and many other countries is that you know learning learning and education are kind of a serious things, and kids learn very early age that education is actually mostly a kind of a academic stuff. Uh, rather than any, anything else. And, you know, that's that's one of those things that I've been trying to do during my time here in Australia, try to help some individual schools to to change, is to just, you know, think harder about how to make a school more playful place. Uh, because with play comes joy. With play comes the creativity and opportunities to use your imagination. And when children learn these things, through play, then they are more likely to use them also when they're learning mathematics and science and music and, and some other things. So, and you know, this is cheap. It's a free of, uh, free of charge. It doesn't cost anything. It just, just uh, requires a little bit, uh, you know, thinking th- differently about what, what is education f- for and, and, and how children learn and then have these good conversations with, uh, with parents and adults and, and just do it. I've seen, I've seen the transformation here. Uh, at the level of the schools, so I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's, it's doable. You know, all this 100% of the schools in Finland do it. 100% of the schools in, in Iceland uh, do the same thing. And there are a number of countries where they are, you know, moving into this direction, bringing play back to children's lives, and through that, uh, you know, restore this. The biggest power that we have in humans is the, the uh, our imagination and how to use that for for learning and also for doing things differently. Wow. So joy, creativity and imagination as core elements of the education process and of school. That's quite an extraordinary shift from an education system that perhaps has tried to damp some of these elements down. We really do have challenges that need to be grappled with in both the short and the long term. And ultimately, we need different thinking about our education system and that the transformation that might be required won't be either quick or easy. In concluding today's conversation, I would love to hear from each of you what you think needs to happen immediately if we were in charge right now for us to begin the journey of education transformation in Australia. Parsi? Yeah, I, let me continue from the, what I said previously about the play. I think I think it's not enough to engage teachers you know give them more voice and uh, an agency in 
in developing and 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 you know doing this transformation. I, I think we really need to engage and invite our children also to to be part of the leadership and be part of this change because you know they, they that's that's going to be their their world and life anywhere that we are talking about. And you know I have. I have learned one thing here that I try to advocate and, and share everywhere I go, and it is that the the young people in this country and uh, and all the other countries have a much more capacity to do great things for themselves and others than we give them credit for. And you know, as long as we keep uh, children as a as a customers or recipients of uh, our efforts to transform education, we are losing a big part of the the opportunity that we have. So let's find a way, like some Australian great schools have done it, that they engage and invite children to be part of the part of the leadership and part of this transformation, and and not just those that we every now and then give a voice and ask what they what they think or what they would love to do, but also let them lead uh, some of these things. I'm not saying that they 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 should be able to do. And allow them to do what, what whatever they want to do, but they have a lot of capacity that we often ignore. And uh, you know, releasing, uh, unleashing this capacity of young children, I think we would be both much better off, and we could see this transformation much more faster than we should otherwise. Wow, that's a really powerful piece of advice, Alice. What would be your first thing? Look, uh, having talked about the the smaller stuff in the classrooms, I think I I we need to see a large systemic change and that requires serious political will and courage. And I know from years ago reading Parsi's book, Finish Lessons, that that kind of huge systemic change actually was what was required to create the system that is now in place. I I think that's correct, right? There was actually a a big picture change um, and in order to make that happen, there have to be really honest conversations. It's complicated, but it's so important that we can't just keep fiddling with the edges, you know. And this is a, a moment of possibility, I think. So I really hope the current um, both federal and all state governments can sort of get it together, please. <laughs> Get it together, please. Embrace the moment in time. Uh, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation today, Alice Garner and Parsi Salberg. It's been wonderful hearing from the two of you, the perspective on the education system and the prospects for change. I feel inspired. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Anna Greta, that was a fantastic conversation. Um, you know, so much of what both Alice and Parsi said resonated with the research that I'm doing at the moment and really powerful points from both of them. But what did you think about that conversation? Oh, I thought, thought the, the strength of having the two of them side by side was really quite extraordinary, entwining the two strands of both the, the comparative experience with the Finnish education system and the lived experience of someone who was really interested in contributing as a teacher in the Victorian education system. It was wonderful to hear both the highlights of the education system and the really significant challenges. And I'm hearing again some recurring themes, themes that have come up in both our previous conversations about education, but also themes that were there through our healthcare system discussions and even through our environment systems discussions. I'm hearing conversations around how we value our relationships, the human connection, the way, the time that it takes to build those relationships and the immense reward and value that we could give to the relationship between teacher and student, between teachers within an education system and the creativity that can come when we value and resource teachers as remarkable professionals that they are. What were your thoughts, Sharon? Look, similarly to you, Anna Greta, those, those themes that we keep coming back to on the pod, almost whatever topic we're talking about of, of care, of time and relationships, I thought was so powerful. I really loved Percy's last point, and I'm so glad he made it, that we need to start listening to children, that we need to engage children and young people in deciding what a vision of our education system should be. You know, and as, as you know, and, and many of our listeners know, Anna Greta, a lot of the research that I do is around listening to children and understanding what the world is from their perspective. And we hear again and again, often how much children love school, how much they care for their teachers, 
but also the ways in which it's failing them. And the pressures that we heard Alice and Pussy talk about are also felt by children and young people. So we really need to start listening to what works in the classroom for children and what doesn't and be guided by that. So a few years ago, um, I was involved in, in a study funded by the Australian Research Council that was led by Professor Anne Graham at Southern Cross University. And in that study, we found that being able to fully participate in school, not just attending, but being engaged in school and participating in decision-making, significantly enhanced children's well-being. And at the moment, we're talking all about well-being. So that is such an important finding from, from that study. And that study and, and other work shows the enormous capability of children to be able to engage in these complex conversations about what works for them and what works for society. And of course, that's so often all about human relationships. But I hear Alice talking about what teachers have to do, and it's simply impossible to form relationships. In the research that we do with children, what we hear from children is that how much they loved it and how much they enjoyed being listened to. And we often hear children say things like, I've got so much to say, but no one ever listens. And part of the reason for that is, as you pointed out, Anna Greta, time. The research that we do, we will have 10 children in a room with perhaps three or four researchers. I cannot imagine the pressures on teachers when there is one of them and 25 or 30 children. It's not possible to build relationships. It's not possible to give children time. And it's not possible to engage imagination or joy or play. And we can't even get close to talking about equity unless we first deal with those things. So we've got some real challenges. If we had the political will, there is a map, there is a clear pathway forward. We just have to commit to it. They're really, really powerful points and it's an extraordinary framework. I am going to go back to the hashtag valuing care. These are choices that we make in our policy space as to how we value time, how we value resources, how we value relationships, how we value play and how we value imagination. Uh, we make the choices today that will influence our future, a future which is less certain than the time that we're in now. So, listeners, we will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes on policyforum.net. We love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, or you can send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net, or you can join our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.